Our text this evening is going to be Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And we're going to be focusing um, solely on the last phrase, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And before we read this text, let's approach God in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to come in the name of your Son and approach you as children, having been reconciled to you and having access to come to you boldly through the grace of Christ. As we consider our subject for tonight, we ask that you would open up our eyes once again to behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would teach and instruct us, and that you would make the word effectual in our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we consider this great privilege that we have to pray unto you as our Father, having confidence that our prayers will indeed be answered, not based upon our own merits, but upon your own character and upon your covenant of grace. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'll begin reading at verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, Argumentative Prayer. And I've taken that uh, title, playing off a phrase from the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, the very last question. And I'll read that for you. This is question 196 of the Larger Catechism, which says, What doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer, The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teacheth us to enforce our petition with arguments, which are to be taken, not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creatures, but from God. And with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency, in regard whereof he is able and willing to help us, so we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that he would and quietly to rely upon him that he would fulfill our requests and to testify and to testify this our desire and assurance we say amen <clears throat> the first thing i want to do before we really get into the consideration of our text 
is deal with a somewhat technical question about the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Um, it was brought to my attention yesterday as, as I was speaking with a brother that certain versions uh, or certain translations of the scriptures actually exclude this part or might have it in brackets saying that something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts don't contain this. So I just want to quickly um, make a, take a few moments to explain why we can uh, receive this text as the word of God, um, even without any kind of technical knowledge of uh, textual criticism or anything like that. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 18, that not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away until all is fulfilled. From this, a corollary follows that the scripture, which God delivered unto his church, he gave them the oracles of God, as it reads in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 2. The oracles of God were given to his church uh, as their privilege. They received the covenants, as uh, Romans 9 puts it. All the words of this law belong to us and to our children forever that we may obey, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it. A number of other uh, scriptures could be adduced or could be referenced to prove the point that the scripture is the heritage of the church. So when these kind of questions arise about whether this or that verse is in fact uh, to be considered scripture, or when uh, modern academia rises up and says, based on these new discoveries we have, that is not to be considered part of the word of God. For us, who might not have that kind of technical knowledge, it is sufficient for us to place our faith in God, preserving his word in all ages, in the church as the instrument to that end. So in the same way, that we would not doubt the authenticity of, say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We all know that famous passage of scripture. Seeing as how God has used it and God has preserved it within his church. God is the preserver. The church is merely his instrument. We can consider this as well in that same category, in that same light. That God, having preserved uh, and delivered this text to his church, we can place our faith in God and receive it as the word of God. But as we come to consider our text, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is how this prayer starts. Our Father, which art in heaven. The Lord's prayer is a pattern for prayer for all of us to learn how to form our prayers. And the first thing, the way that it starts, our Father is astonishing. We are able to approach God as our Father because Christ has reconciled us to God. And being reconciled, we're adopted as his children. Thus, prayer is a benefit that another benefit that Christ has procured for us in his work of mediation. Prayer is a benefit that we have as children of God. So that not only 
as creatures do we approach God as creator. But we also have a salvific relationship with God so that we can approach him as our father. And we can trust that he has a fatherly care for us. And throughout these petitions, various things are uh, prayed for. And the conclusion, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. To, to sum up what it is teaching us is to enforce our prayers with arguments. That is, we have a ground to make an appeal to God. And this grounding is not based on ourselves or anything that's in us, but solely upon God's own character, his own nature, his own promises, and his covenant of grace. So this evening, we're going to consider some implications of that and take a look at a few examples of this kind of prayer in Scripture and consider what we ourselves can learn and what we can apply to our, to our own prayer life as we consider and try to develop a biblical theology of prayer. <clears throat> Having that covenanted relationship with God, we have privileges. If we were to come to God based only on our status, based on our own worthiness, or upon our own righteousness, we would have no grounds to make any appeals or make any requests or any petitions before God. But God has come unto us in the covenant of grace and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. Thus, we have confidence and we have reason to believe that God, even in spite of our own sinfulness, even in spite of our own unworthiness, will hear our prayers and that he is able, not only able but also willing. And that's an important thing to consider as we pray. It's easy to assent to the ability or to the power of God to answer prayer. We all acknowledge that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, able to do all things. But at times, it's also easy to doubt that he is willing to answer we hold to the sovereignty of God, we must assent to his power to do all things. But there can also be doubt creeping in to our hearts as to whether God is going to actually answer these prayers. Because if he's sovereign, then he's sovereign to answer or not to answer. But we are to come to God with faith. Faith not only in his power, but also in his benevolence, in his willingness to do good to us. So as we pray, we draw confidence, knowing that we have this fatherly relationship with God. That he himself has promised his goodness, his kindness, his fatherly care towards us. And so all these petitions are grounded. They're enforced. He says, for thine is the kingdom. Jesus is saying, answer these petitions. 
Let your name be hallowed in the earth. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation. Why? Because it is you, you who have the kingdom. You that have the power. And you that have the glory. And this gives us a powerful assurance as we approach God in prayer. That even if we've sinned, even if we're totally unworthy, even if we have no grounds to ask God for anything, if you were to go to the CEO of Amazon and ask him for a new car or to pay for your college tuition, most likely he's going to look at you and say, who are you? Why should I do anything for you? I have no reason to answer that petition of yours. But Jesus Christ has purchased for us reconciliation and adoption into the family of God so that we are able to come to one who has far more riches than any man on earth, no matter how rich he may be. And we're able to approach him confidently boldly based on the merits of Christ. An example of this kind of prayer that is based on appealing to God's own covenant and his own nature can be found in Daniel chapter 9. Here in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has discerned by considering the prophecies of Jeremiah, how that the captivity of Judah was coming to an end. They had sinned. They had rebelled against the Lord. And God had brought judgment upon them. So Daniel, in praying to the Lord and confessing the sins of himself and of his people, he makes repeated appeals to God's own mercy, to God's own character and his justice, knowing that there's no ground to approach God to answer these petitions based on anything that is in themselves. In verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Daniel knows that he and his people have lost all grounds, have no grounds. They didn't even have it to begin with. To appeal to God based upon their own merits. So he prays based 
for the Lord's own sake because of his own righteousness according to his mercy and if we know that God is just there's a certain kind of strength that enforces our prayers when we come to God and plead to him for justice in the world first of all this shows how that our will is aligned with God's if we are truly praying for the will of the Lord to be done and grounding our prayers upon his own attributes. The scripture says if we pray anything according to his will, we have confidence that he will hear us and answer us. So when we come to God and we pray for justice because he's just, or we pray for mercy because he is merciful, or we pray that the people of God would no longer breathe Uh, be under reproach so that his own glory and his own name would not be blasphemed among the nations, among the pagans. Even as Moses prayed when he interceded on behalf of the people of God when they made the golden calf saying that the Egyptians would reproach the name of the Lord and say that he was not able to deliver them and hence they perished in the wilderness. When we ground our prayers on the attributes of God, when we seek to have our prayers answered for the Lord's own sake, we have truly aligned our wills with His. Another example can be found in Habakkuk chapter 1. In this text, God is foretelling how he's going to bring judgment through the hands of the Chaldeans, how they're going to be a a hasty and severe people that won't show any mercy. And Habakkuk, he prays and he appeals to the Lord. And in verse 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1, he says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? God has just pronounced his judgment to come upon his own people for their sins. And even in the midst of this, the prophet is able to make an appeal. He says, Lord, you are from everlasting. You are holy. You are of purer eyes to behold evil. Yes, we, your people, have sinned. But nevertheless, have mercy on your people. Do not let these wicked men Triumph over your people and deal treacherously treacherously and wickedly against your people for your own name's sake. We see also that this gives us ground to complain to God in the midst of our afflictions. Complaining to God, not against God. We see this throughout the Psalms. Jesus himself 
when he was on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what do we have going on in this psalm, in these words of our Lord Jesus? Has there been a separation between the Father and the Son? Is there disunity within the Trinity? God forbid. No. Far from it. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus, he says, my God, my God. That is covenant language. I will be your God. You will be my people. No one can claim to have God as their God unless they are in covenant with him. Jesus is looking to God and saying, Lord, my God, why is it that this evil has come upon me? Why have you taken away your favor from me? And he has a ground to appeal on that because he is, in fact, his God. It's like a child coming to his father and saying, my father, my father, why this and why that? He's appealing to that relationship, to that covenant relationship that gives ground for his complaint. At times, those who are introduced to Reformed theology and the idea of God's sovereignty and having foreordained all things that come to pass before the foundation of the world, questions can arise about prayer. If God has already foreordained all things, then why do we pray? Or if I pray, should I just am I just praying because God said so? Is it lawful for me to bring earnest desires to the Lord, or should I simply be content knowing that God's absolute foreordained will is coming to pass? But this can be answered quite easily as we read and sing through the Psalms. Or we look at the life of the, of the Old Testament church throughout the scriptures. For example, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, desiring a child from the Lord. How did she pray? She had an earnest desire, a lawful desire. She did not merely rest content with her situation saying, well, it's already been foreordained. Therefore, I'm not going to worry about having a child. No, her desire was, was lawful and she was able to come to God and approach him with her request. Prayer is a means which God himself has established to bring about his foreordained will. There's a, there's a concurrence between God's providence whereby he brings all things which he has foreordained to pass and our own human actions. And further, it is not for us to search into the secret decrees of God. Rather, we are to come bringing all of our cares, all of our wants, all of our desires before the Lord so that he would bear them for us. 
and we trust in him. And in praying to him, even for the pettiest of things that might seem to be petty in the grand scheme of things, we bring those things to the Lord. And this is one of the means which he teaches us to trust in him. God uses temporal things to teach us of eternal things. God, when he wanted to teach Israel of his salvific power, he saved them from temporal enemies. That does not mean that that salvation that they spoke of throughout the Old Testament pertained only to those temporal things and those temporal enemies, but rather through those things they were learned to trust in God for salvation from all things. Salvation in every respect. A complete salvation. In the same way, we are not to cast aside our temporal needs, our temporal cares under the pretense of only looking unto spiritual things. No, we are to cast all of our cares upon the Lord and trust that in the same way as he has given his son for us, he will freely give us all things that we need in this life as well. So we know that there is a correlation between our temporal needs and our trusting in God for those temporal things and our eternal hope. As we consider this great privilege, let us remember that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ which was shed on the cross, whereby reconciliation was purchased for us, whereby we were adopted into the family of God, whereby we have been brought into covenant with God and therefore are able to make appeals to God's nature, to his mercy, to his covenant. How greatly, therefore, ought we to esteem the gospel and all of Christ's benefits which are poured out for us. Christ, our mediator, who cares for us in all things. Who grafts us into his body so that we gain the status of children as he himself has by nature. Let us therefore, in all things, hold fast to Christ. And as we, come, as we hold fast to Christ by faith, let us be confident as we pray, knowing that our Father is merciful to us. And although we have no worthiness in and of ourselves, yet we can t- make arguments based upon his own nature, based upon his own promises, We can say, like Christ, when things appear to go awry in our lives, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are your former loving kindnesses which you swear unto David in your truth? Psalm 89. 
Yes, we trust that whatever our circumstances may be, we know that God has not truly forsaken us. And yet, when those things do go awry, when we are in calamity or in affliction, we can come to God and we can say, Lord, in your covenant, you have sworn loving kindness. You have sworn goodness to us. Show me that goodness. Show me the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. As we read in Psalm 27. And this itself is an act of faith. That whatever our present circumstances may be, we still trust that we will taste of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let us therefore never lose hope. Let our faith never be shaken, regardless of what circumstances may, might happen to come upon us. Let us always stand firm in the covenant, in the promises, in God's very nature. God is immutable, His word is truth. It is not necessary for him to make any covenant or make any promise. Simply that he says it is enough for us to believe it and to hold it as firm truth. But by two, so that by two immutable things, and that it is impossible for God to lie, and that he also makes a firm covenant, we have a double assurance so that for the weakness of our own faith, we have an added confidence. So we take confidence not only from the nature of God's immutability and his inability to lie, but also that on top of that, he gives promises and brings us into his covenant. This fatherly care that we have from God for all of our needs, this access to God as our father, the opportunity to make appeal to God according to his nature and his promises are all benefits which Christ has purchased for us. All things which when we place our faith in Christ and his offer, in his mediatorial work of salvation, again, something that goes beyond simply being delivered out of hell, but also having all the goodness, all the riches of Christ offered and poured out to us. So let us rest assured, rest comforted in the fatherly care that God has for us as children adopted through the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can call upon you as our Father. We thank you for the work that has been done in Jesus Christ in bringing us reconciliation to you. We thank you for the care that you have for us. 
and providing for all of our needs and showing us kindness in all the things that we go through in our lives and giving us confidence that whatever afflictions, whatever trials we may go through, that yet you are our Father, yet you are our God, and we can come to you and that we can trust in your immutable word and your unbreakable promise. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit to work effectually in us. That we would have faith in your word. And that we would pray with vigor, in earnest, not doubting your goodness, not doubting your ability, and not doubting your willingness to do us good, even in this life, as we look ahead to our hope in the life to come. And we ask that you would be with us for the rest of this Sabbath day. We thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as your people, to worship you, to commune with you and with one another. We thank you for the finished work of Christ, wherein we rest on this Sabbath day. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.